This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is September 24th, 2020, and this is episode 208. I'm Scott Delonabome. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we check in on the first few days and polls of the election, and we dig into the federal throne speech and the first days of the new session of Parliament. Thank you to the 98 people who contribute every month. Thanks especially to our newest patron, Jacqueline, and to Quinn for upping their pledge. You can join them and support the podcast at patreon.com slash and Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature and the BC election delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to politicstoday.news slash free dash trial. And we just actually finished recording an interview with the podcast Ontario Loud, which is an Ontario politics podcast, but it we were there to give a bit of a background and briefer on BC politics. That episode will be coming out on Tuesday, so subscribe to their feed wherever you found this podcast and listen to us there, plus all of their takes on Doug Ford and Ontario politics. Let's get into it. And they're off. The election is now three days old. The leaders have all done their speeches at the Union of BC Municipalities which gave us almost nothing other than Wilkinson and Firstenau do not want to be in an election and Horgan does want to be in an election. I actually feel sorry for all the councillors and various municipal politicians who are working hard for the UBCM stuff, but it's just got completely overshadowed by everything else going on this week. Totally. UBCM is usually a big news story and BC politics and this week it's just their conference was online and they passed some resolutions. No one's really going to talk about them because election. Wilkinson's speech was up first and I should say all of these speeches were actually scheduled before the election. They were just scheduled as leaders coming and presenting and now they just turned out to be campaign stops which was pretty convenient. Beyond calling the election an unethical power grab in his word, he did promise that the Liberals would be unrolling policies on crime, homelessness, economy, and he promised some very provocative environmental policies. I think that raised some eyebrows because I don't know what a provocative environmental policy is. I don't know. If he decides to ban oil or something in BC, that might raise a few eyebrows and, and be provocative. But yeah, it, it's not exactly clear what that means. I think the other language that raised some eyebrows is when he was talking about crime and homelessness. He talked about this quote, suddenly this street phenomenon of people who are out of control, which drew the same kind of ire as the renting is a wacky time of life comment that he made a couple, was that a year ago now? Two years ago? Feels like longer than that. I think it was it's in the four times. Ago. Yeah, I think it was like a 2018 thing. I think it's fairly early on in his time as uh, leader of the opposition. I didn't get a chance to watch any of the speeches. So, having to go off secondhand reporting through the Vancouver Sun and others, and we'll put links in the show notes. First, now reiterated how much she had confidence in the government and how proud she was of the work they'd done together and how betrayed she feels having to go to an election. Whereas Horgan, in the conversation he had, tried to argue that the Greens were getting in the way of $10 a day childcare, which I think was a bit of an issue during the 2017 election, thinking back to it. But the Greens had signed on to help roll out childcare. And there's not any evidence prior to now that it was the Greens' lack of commitment to the government's agenda that was holding up the rollout of further spaces, which is something Wilkinson also criticized this week. I'm not sure the level of criticism coming from Wilkinson at you didn't do the thing that was more ambitious than we promised to do last time. It is really going to be very effective as a line of attack, especially if his platform doesn't 
one-up the NDP on that. So I, I'm not sure what he's thinking on that. It seems a little disjointed and not particularly well-focused, which I suppose somewhat describes his general tenure as a leader. The other parts that he hinted on the platform is, I think, actually going to have more resonance on a lot of those fronts. But we'll have to wait and see on that because who who knows if they'll actually deliver a relevant platform that's really going to connect with people. On the part about the election being a test of the premier's trustworthiness, I don't know. It's I, I'm not sure you're going to be able to win that fight. I, yeah, it's... a dumb that we're going into an election. Most British Columbians don't want one. But I'm, I'm not sure you're necessarily going to be able to win a fight if trustworthiness is the key factor or, or the key ballot question. I, I, it's not something that I think Andrew Wilkinson will necessarily stack up favorably if you try and run that. You, you gotta, They really need to frame it much more around something along the lines of Oh, it's going to be a question of, I don't know, judgment maybe or suitability to lead if you want to do for the general character of the government approach to it. In theory, I saw one report saying that the liberals will be dropping their platform next week. So we'll have a chance to dig into that unless they delay it. But hopefully we get to see that right now, even with the dislike the distaste of the snap election the ball is still largely in the ndp's court uh, we'll get into the polls in a bit but they're still in a pretty strong position and it's not like most people look back at the last three and a half years and go that was a very corrupt bad government that we wouldn't want to continue yeah it, they're playing criticism went to law but the current government it's they, they haven't really sparked the dislike that say that the previous government did after they stuck around for so long. It's still a first-term government. They haven't really done a huge amount of the unpopular moves that governments tend to accumulate over their lifetime. It, it's going to be tough to make that the key focus. And I do worry the liberals are running the same mistake that the Sheer campaign did last time of overestimating how much the general public shares their intense dislike of the other party. You mentioned this on our conversation on Ontario Loud, that the Liberals look like they're playing to the base, hoping that by simply doing that, they can got with, secure the vote they got last time and pick up just enough to win two or three more seats, which would give them a majority. And I think we both agree that's a bad strategy because the fundamentals are different in twenty seven in twenty twenty than they were in twenty seventeen. But I thought it was a good analysis. Yeah, it, it's not as bad as it is with some parties. The liberals do have very high floor, and, and even now we'll get to the poll in a bit. But they're still sitting at, depending on which poll you look at, somewhere in the thirty to thirty seven percent range which as a base isn't all that bad. The the trick is it's the next 10% they need. And it's far from clear that that 10% is going to look at the current situation and decide they need a change of government. And maybe the liberals could frame it, but it really needs to be a looking forward approach. I just don't think the NDP's accumulated enough mistakes for bad decisions in the last couple of years to, to make the centerpiece of a campaign. You really gotta gotta make it about they're not well suited to the new challenge that has arisen. There's stuff that the liberals could do on that front, but I'm not sure they're they're really gonna be able to pull it out. It's, I think one of the places we see an opportunity for differentiation is in one of the places where the government is still struggling, in part because it's an incredibly difficult file. But this week, we saw the report from the coroner on the toxic drug or the illicit drug deaths for August. 
Thankfully, slightly fewer people died in August than in July, only 147 versus 176. But these are still very high numbers. Even in August 2019, we'd gotten down to 86 deaths that month. Still a lot of people dying from tainted drugs. Um, already over a thousand people have died in 2020 from toxic drug supply. And COVID has really just blown this up as we've talked about before. We were starting to turn the corner on the overdose crisis, it seemed like, in late 2019. And now that people had to lock down, they were turning to substance use more and more. This prompted some reaction from the political parties this week. Horgan, again, tried to blame the Greens for blocking Bill 22. That was the bill to allow for involuntary detention of minors who'd been admitted with overdoses. But this is a bill that the coroner, the public health officers, the Civil Liberties Association, most experts in the field said would not help the situation and may even lead to additional deaths by people refusing to even seek that care. So it's not a great week on the government side for dealing with the overdose crisis. And I don't think we saw strong arguments from the other parties about what they would do differently, though. Yeah, the, the Liberals have definitely hinted that's going to feature fairly prominently. The campaign stop that Wilkinson did out of Maple Ridge today, uh, did, I think it was today, maybe been yesterday. Anyway, the campaign stop he did out of Maple Ridge, he apparently talked a, a bit about that. I, I think we will see something in the platform, how that, at, what that shapes up to be, I, I think it's going to be an open question, but it's going to be a spot of weakness for the current government just because it has proven to be a very difficult file. And yeah, since the doctor, it's something he can, I think, fairly credibly speak on. And it's probably one of those things where he doesn't come off or he has the option of coming off as like a caring doctor type rather than his somewhat detached view that he sometimes has. So there's potential there. There's potential. I think so far we've seen him take the other tact where he links it to crime and out of control street homelessness. And I think they were referring to how the BCNDP is just hoarding people up in the hotel rooms that they're buying out. I feel like it ne- it's, an, it's, a, it's an issue that needs a lot of compassion. And I know yeah. that there are voters out there who don't feel that way. And they would be more sympathetic to the BC Liberals. I just struggle to empathize with those people who can't come around to that. I, I do think the crime issue is going to be something that will have a fair bit of resonance. There are some crimes that are up quite a bit. Property crime in Vancouver's up significantly. And I actually heard from a listener after our last episode that was concerned we didn't really give the issue enough of its due. And I, I do think there's something to it. But I, the challenge will also be to address it in a way that doesn't come off as uncompassionate. So if the liberals can strike the right balance of their being compassionate, but also very clearly want to take this issue seriously and reduce crime, I think there's definitely a good opening for them there. And it is something that will I think, play with a lot of the swing voters that will ultimately decide the election. Let's pivot from the issues of the election into more of the horse racy political machinations stuff. All of the parties are quickly nominating more and more candidates. The NDP are announcing winners of nomination contests every day. The, I believe First Now was asked how many candidates the Greens have nominated, and she didn't know offhand, and it seems like they may be struggling to find candidates, but I am starting to find a few people who are putting their names forward. And I do hope the Greens can run a full slate, because, just for the health of our democracy, to give people choices, but I could see them uh, struggling to hit the 87 candidate mark. The Liberals, though, I want to come in on them as they were in the hot water this week for nomination news as the Surrey White Rock nomination ended up being an appointment after the party says they were only had time to greenlight uh, candidate Trevor Halford, who was named as the nominee. After they found some social media red flags for the other two who were seeking the seat, 
the nomination. So it's, it's always tough on these. The green lighting committee, it, it is confident. They don't come out and say most of the time what the issues were. So it, it's hard to know if this is just something that is a, a post-hoc justification or if there really was something that was going to make it hard for them to get everything sorted out in time. I, it's not great in the sense that the liberals have been working on candidate recruitment for about oh probably two years now. And ideally they should have started doing this vetting a lot earlier. So it wouldn't be an issue. And this is the seat that Tracy Reddy is vacated when she resigned at the start of September. And so the liberals would have been actively already looking for candidates in this constituency. And so it's quite weird why they weren't able to move a little bit faster with this. It They didn't say that they didn't green light, they didn't reject the other two. And I'll you know, give them names. This is former White Rock Councillor Meg, Megan Knight and Mike Pierce, who's been a politician for a while in various local government roles in the interior, but now lives in White Rock. Both of them now f- are saying, quote, the fix was in because of the actions of the party here. Um, not a great look when the party can't handle the green light. It was also weird that the party itself talked about flags and social media issues. Like you said, these green light committees are often very behind the scenes and don't tend to talk publicly too much. This will be blown over by next week, but each party has their kind of moment of nomination drama, inevitably. Yeah, that always happens. I This is probably less damaging than what we talked about last week with Nathan Cullen up in the team. So Definitely was, agree. <laughs> yeah. These things tend not to be that impactful. The, the, the Cullen one might be because party fights with local EDA about nominations is a rather blasé political story that everybody hears and forgets about, whereas the symbolism of the Nathan Cullen one's, I think, a lot more potent. And I think McPhee has talked about, or at least hasn't ruled out other options like running as an independent or challenging it in other ways. So she's still an active player in the drama there, but we'll have to see where that goes. The next thing I want to touch on is something I want to do for each week going through the election. I've been playing around with the Facebook ad library recently, and it's a ton of fun because of their new transparency requirements. Any page that is running political ads has to report how much money is being spent on their advertising on Facebook. So you can pull up like the BCNDP's page or the Liberal Party and the Green Party. We've talked about this for some of the leadership candidates in the past for the Greens, and I've posted a couple times to our Twitter. For the last seven days, the 16th to the 22nd, which includes some pre-rate uh, data in there, the BCNDP outspent the BC Liberals two to one. This, sorry, the BCNDP outspent the BC Liberals three to one. This was $29,000 spent by the BCNDP. I think a big chunk of that was pre-rate when they were just dumping money on the on Facebook ads, which was a big sign for me that they were going to call an election. Uh, the Liberals spent just under 10000 and the BC Green Party has spent $300 in the last week. I'll add that the Liberals have also spent two point, or the Liberals have also spent $2,700 on ads for Andrew Wilkinson's page. There was only a couple hundred dollars spent on Horgan, and I think none for First Now's pages. Now, there's probably a bunch of local candidates who are also spending ads, and in the next week, we'll start to really see all of that ramp up. But just in the first week, definitely a big <laughs> advantage for the BCNDP on Facebook ads, which may or may not turn into anything. But with an election that's going to be largely fought online, on TV, by phones rather than in-person events, I think following social media is going to be very key to seeing how these parties are positioning each other. Yeah, I think ads tend to get a little overrated relative to their actual effect and it's one thing if it's a case of one party does a lot of advertising the other does no advertising but when you're two parties both getting your ads out there that the relative frequency probably actually doesn't matter all that much in the grand scheme of things that the very small spend by the bc green party is the sort of thing that they might want to be concerned about but 
the liberal NDP split on that. The liberals may be keeping their powder dry for a little later. It's not something I'd be too worried about them now, but if it continues, maybe it might be an issue. Yeah, I look at it partly as a proxy for how much money are they taking in. The liberals will undoubt the liberals and possibly the other parties will undoubtedly get loans to help cover them in the short term for the campaign, and then they'll fundraise after the election to pay that off. But it's at least a hint that the NDP has a war chest and is happy to spend it, which we already knew. But it's nice to confirm those things. The other big number out this week was that Elections BC has said that 160,000 people have already asked for mail-in ballots, which I think includes both of us now. Yeah, I put in my request for mail-in ballot on day one. I'm guessing you did fairly recently too. Yeah, a day or two ago. The one thing for everyone listening who's requested mail-in ballot is we figured out this afternoon or Elections BC was tweeting it out that if you request a mail-in ballot and it's sent to you before candidates' nominations are confirmed on, I believe it's October 2nd, you're going to get a write-in ballot. So it'll be a blank, not blank piece of paper, but it'll be a blank line for you to write either the party or specific candidate in your constituency to clearly express your preference. So do your best to make sure who's running in your riding. I expect this is going to lead to a lot more challenges in judicial recounts if we end up with some close writings. So the candidate cutoff is two weeks prior to election day. But yeah, that does give not a huge amount of time. And it's going to be curious how it works. When I was in the military, I'd vote in the riding I came from uh, Saanich Gulf Islands for federal elections. And... Yeah, those ones were interesting because they literally have a giant book with every candidate countrywide, all the lists, and it was a write-in ballot in those cases. But without the actual lists distributed, it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. And there's probably going to be a lot of scrutinizing on exactly who these mail-in ballots are for and whether or not – and there may be some – contentions if we get a couple of close writings over which ones should be disqualified or not. Elections BC has said that they do try to not liberally, but reasonably interpret what a person's intention were. So if you misspell your candidate's name, that won't be disqualifying. And I don't, I don't know yet, but hopefully we won't have too many races with multiple. One example for uh, Vancouver Fairview. There we go. Hopefully we don't have many repeat names on the ballot, as people sometimes do to mess with these things. Let's get into the polls to close off the segment. Two polls were dropped today, one from Insights West and one from Research Co., which was Mario Canseco's firm that he started up after leaving Insights West. I just find that funny. Both show a sizable lead for the BC NDP. The Insights West poll sees the lead at 42 to 29 for the Liberals, 16 for the Greens, and 12 for the Conservatives. Research Co. sees it at 44% for the NDP, 37% for the Liberals, 13% for the Greens, and 4% for the Conservatives. I lean a little more towards believing the Research Co. numbers since the Conservatives, I think, are unlikely to hit 12% in the province. Yeah, I, I agree. Liberals at 29 seems low to me too and i think in 2017 the conservatives ran candidates in i want to say 12 ridings it was not very much they overall just were not a major all right so looked it up they they ran candidates in 10 ridings last time and got a Which, solid half a percent of vote province-wide yeah, which is actually down 4% from the previous time. But yeah, overall, they were non-entity. They actually have a leader this time, I th- I think. but They do. I forget his name. Yeah. H- how much that's actually going to make a difference, I would more or less discount them unless it's, I don't know, a weird fringe case riding or that they could be the margin of victory and for one seat. But yeah, overall, they're basically a non-entity as far as elections go. And uh, who knows, maybe they'll surprise us and nominate 60 candidates and 
actually make a bit of a showing, but by all indications, they're they're just not going to get 12% of the vote. I, they get 12% of the province-wide vote and only ran a handful of candidates. That would be weird and absurd. So a few takeaways from these polls. The first, I think, is that whether the NDP is at 42 or 44, that's down a few points from the high 40, from the high 40s to even just slightly over 50% that we saw in some polls in the summer. And the Liberals are definitely up from or stable on some of those numbers. I think that is reflected by what Insights West also asked about, which is how much do you support or oppose a snap election? They found that 57% of people are opposed to the snap election, 30% of those are strongly opposed, and only 10% of British Columbians strongly support a snap election, which is not too surprising. Some encouragement for the NDP and the fact that among their supporters, 62% are supportive of calling a snap election and only 9% are strongly opposed, which you would expect, but at least their base isn't. And that base is the 42% willing to vote for them. They're not the mad ones. So a lot more a lot less room for the NDP to grow their vote unless people get over the snap election call. But at least they didn't piss off too many of their own supporters. Yeah, it is interesting looking at this compared to where the vote ended up last time. So if you take the research toe, they've basically gained four points from their 2017 showing. The, the liberals are down three. That's still a decent spread, but like it's, the sort of thing that polls could definitely shift by that much over the course of an election. And it, it wouldn't take that much of a reversal of fortune to end up back in like a 40 40 uh, split on the vote. Another interesting thing from Research Co. is they asked who would be the best premier, which is a fairly common question that I don't tend to pay too much attention to, but I think this will be a very leader driven election. Obviously, each party. Uh, the NDP and Liberals think their guy will be the best leader. But among the Greens, 35% said John Horgan would be the best premier, but only 30% of Green voters thought Sonia Furstenau would be the best premier. That might just reflect her lack of name recognition, but you would hope that she would have strong name recognition among her own party. And among BC Liberals, 20% of them, 21% said Horgan would be the best premier. So Horgan's actually ingratiated himself fairly well to BC Liberals because I don't think many BC Liberals would support many NDP premiers in years gone by. No, probably not. That does, I think, somewhat reflect the weakness Wilkinson has with his own party, but uh, it's one of those weird things I could see reversing over the course of an election, especially as partisanship sets in a bit more. So we'll keep our eye out for more polls. If you want to throw us a couple hundred bucks, we might run our own to see how that goes, but we'll make those decisions as we go. Let us know if you want us to run our own poll, of course, and anything else you want to hear in our coverage. Moving on to our second segment, much to do about nothing. So, Ian, does the country feel radically different than it did a week ago? My God. I have a vision of a stronger and more resilient Canada, to quote the title of the throne speech that I sat through on Wednesday noon. It was a 50-minute speech, and it took forever to get to it because prior to the throne speech, if you've never watched it federally, the usher for the back black rod has to leave the Senate where the throne speech is read. Take it to the House of Yeah. Take it to the House of Commons, bang on the door, drag MLA or drag MPs back to the Senate. And then they can begin. In this case, the Senate is under renovation. So the actual chamber is in a different building. So he had to get out of the building, get in a car, drive across Ottawa, get out, go into the House of Commons, get the half a dozen or whatever dozen MPs who are going to come because they had to reduce their numbers for COVID, get into vans, drive back to the Senate and get in. And it was just like, Sometimes ceremony doesn't feel as necessary when it becomes this difficult. And usually the entire Supreme Court justices are sitting right in front of the governor general. 
to read it, but this time poor Richard Wagner had to sit there by himself in his Santa costume. The whole thing was surreal. Everyone was wearing masks too, but that only that was like the least weird thing. Yeah, visually it was quite a bit different than previous years. So yeah, that's what quite all the way across Ottawa. The, the villains are like two blots apart, but still, it definitely dragged things out a bit. But yeah, the, the reason I asked that question off the top was because this was supposed to be the big event, the big speech that the liberals were going to completely refocus their entire policy agenda, put in this like transformational program to really completely redo Canada and transform the country to I don't know, make it stronger, more resilient, whatever. And it was so important that they needed to prorogue Parliament for weeks because they could not bear any distractions while they were working on their national project of transformation. The actual result ended up being significantly underwhelming. Yeah, even in the days leading up to the throne speech, the government had started, the liberal government had started walking back some of the language like, there were all these trial balloons about maybe this will be a basic income. Canada will look different. And then in the week before it was, well, there's a lot of concerns about out of control spending, or they started really changing the language from that green economy is going to happen to, well, some liberal insiders are worried that they don't want to be seen as taking advantage of a crisis to push a green agenda at this point. And it's, we're still in a climate crisis. You can do both. You can walk and chew gum. Nevertheless, they did bring forward quite a lot of ideas in the speech. It was a long speech, 50 plus minutes, almost an hour, whereas they're often 30 to 40 minutes, I would say. And it was full of a lot of tinkering, I would say. Some of it bigger, some of it smaller. Lots of spending will definitely be coming. But there was no like unifying this is what the agenda is. They kept talking about it in terms of four foundations, which I think Nora Loretto pointed out on Twitter that you generally only build a structure with a foundation, like a single one. You only need one foundation. You might use four pillars, but that was just... It really depends on the structure. Yeah. It was a little bit petty language semantics. But let's... Like a, a bridge has multiple foundations, at least one on each page. There you go. It's the bridge to a new Canada. So the four foundations that they named were fighting the pandemic, healthcare, stuff like that. The second is supporting people and businesses. The third is building back better. And the final one is standing up for who we are as Canadians. There wasn't a ton in the first one other than continuing to roll out the pandemic response and fight COVID. They did promise to approve tests as fast as they could and roll them out as fast as they could so we can respond to COVID as it grows. I know there's a huge issue in Ontario right now with testing backlogs, which I think is a combination of provincial healthcare incompetence with, along with the federal government's refusal to certify any faster testing. Boys yeah, in short pants covered this recently. Yeah, I, I was actually just going to give them a shout out for that thing. Uh, but yeah, I was actually a little surprised to see that in there because so right now there's basically two types of tests out there. There's the stick something up your nose and whittle it around to catch a bunch of virus particles and then send it off to this big fancy lab and get like, it's a highly accurate test, but it's both unpleasant to take and has a 24 to 48 hour if there's a real bad lot, sometimes longer turnaround. And there's these other tests that are not quite as accurate, but can be done quickly, are, are less invasive. And most peer countries have approved one version of the test. And like the theory here, that which I think is quite compelling, is that you don't need the same level of accuracy if you can adjust for in volume going from like 99% to 95% accuracy is fine if you're testing everyone at three times the rate and if you get a false positive on one of those the the person just stays home for a couple of days like there's i think a fairly compelling case for those sorts of rapid tests and yet it's weird that 
Canada is insisting on going through a long and lengthy review process. And well, that in theory makes a lot of sense for normal medical devices when there isn't a giant health emergency. With the pandemic, it really is a case where there needs to be more emphasis on speed relative to making sure every possible I is dotted and T is crossed because the costs of not having this are, are just so big. And you got to wonder, does the government of Canada think Germany can't properly evaluate a test? It, re- it really seems to be the sort of situation where the political people should step in and make it clear that no, no if a peer countries approve this, we should get it into Canada as well. So it was weird that they brought it in here because I don't know if I was them, I would not exactly highlight the fact that we don't have rapid testing approved. We'll have to see where they go from here. It's a complicated issue and one that I sometimes am willing to grant a lot more leeway because I'm not an epidemiologist or an expert in this at all. And the questions are complex, but like you say, other countries have been moving forward on this. So there's something weird here. But bringing it back to the throne speech, let's get into the big spending announcements that make up the bulk of those second and third sections. One of the things people were looking to see in here and was in here was a promise to move forward on childcare. It was really vague, like throne speeches are usually pretty vague. But this was just that the government is going to make an effort towards bringing a national childcare approach on making sure that there is accessible, affordable, inclusive, and high-quality childcare. They didn't promise uh, universal, but just that we'd take some lessons from Quebec's approach. So we'll still have to see how that works. Immediately, the provinces were upset because they felt like this was treading on their territory and they just want cash transfers, as always. Uh, the same thing came up with Pharmacare, where the government promised to move forward with the work that they've been doing on the various studies, but it wasn't clear on what timeline. So both of those are like renewed pledges. Yeah, in fact, that's something that was a theme throughout this, is that there's a lot of stuff that had already been announced. If you cut out everything that had a previous government announcement associated with it, it would have been a five-minute speech, maybe 10. They were really treading back over what they'd already covered. But there's still a few things in here. There's some more stuff in the jobs portion of it, such as a pledge to create one million jobs, which was an interesting choice. I'm not sure pulling a Tim Hudak and taking his brand is really the, the best thing to do or the thing that will really land, but they decided to go with it. But this I time, think the idea green. there is they've calculated that's what it would take to, quote, restore employment to previous levels. So it might just be coincidental. And to be fair, they say over 1 million jobs, so it's not exactly 1 million. By- and, and unlike Tim, who, at, for uh, people who aren't uh, watchers of Ontario politics, he was the PC leader in the 2014 campaign had got absolutely destroyed. But unlike what he did there, he they didn't start their million jobs plan with a promise to cut 100,000 jobs. At least their math is going all in the right direction. Yeah, there was a commitment off the top of this speech that, quote, now is not the time for austerity, which I think a lot of progressives were very happy to see. And even just people across the political aisle until you get to the right wing, because I think most people recognize that if you're going to spend in the middle of a pandemic is as good a time to spend when you also have almost zero interest rates. Those jobs will be created by, quote, a range of tools, including direct investment in the social sector and infrastructure, training up skilled workers, incentives for employers to retain and hire workers. So among those numbers will include every job, I imagine, that is created or extended by extending the emergency wage subsidy right through to next summer, which was something a lot of employers were looking forward to as that was set to expire in a couple of weeks. So not every job will necessarily be a new job, but or necessarily a government job. And I think every childcare space that's created, they will count as a job. 
So it'll be some interesting accounting if anyone ever does try to hold them to that million job promise. Uh, but speaking of be- extending benefits, the government committed in the throne speech, and we'll get to it in a minute when we talk about Bill C-2 that was rolled out today to extend CERB, or not directly extend CERB, but to roll it into EI and make sure that people who are currently on the emergency response benefit have some kind of coverage going forward. And we saw the details of that today. It, this one could also be counted in the things they'd already announced because shortly before prorogation, they said they were going to be ceasing the CERB and rolling everything into EI and that they were going to be putting in some additional benefits. Not a, not a surprise there. They, they needed to reiterate the point. And also from the sounds of it, there's probably going to be broader EI reform in the long run too, beyond what just Bill C2 introduces. Which is definitely necessary. One of the things that was new, as far as I could tell, was a new Canadian disability benefit, which they say they want to model off after the seniors guaranteed income supplement. And I don't think this is something we've talked about much, but it's come up in discussions around a guaranteed annual income, because it is the GIS is basically a basic income for seniors. So if you are under a certain amount of financial income, you get a top up from the government. And this benefit has been credited with lifting a lot of seniors out of poverty. Right now, there's a patchwork of provincial benefit programs for people with disabilities, and there's not a lot coming from the federal government. And this is a place where the feds can really move in and make a big difference in people's lives. I know there's a big debate in Alberta right now around AISH, which is the Alberta income for the severely handicapped. Uh, A lot of people get that funding and the Kenny government had talked about cutting it, but now is just looking at changing the criteria to cut the number of people on it because it's a very expensive program. And it's controversial there because you look, a lot of people know someone who is receiving that funding. And it's, if you have a severe disability, work is not possible. And this is a way to take care of those people. And so I'm excited to see what comes of this, at very least. Uh, They also try to aim at big tech companies, both in terms of introducing taxes as well as sounds like some sort of Canton requirements going to be coming down uh, the pipe on that one. It's probably going to be awful. Yeah, I'm not a... I, I don't find the Canton stuff particularly compelling. and Just, the, just the invest in CBC. In, pardon? Just invest in CBC and let Netflix this, oh, do what they even want. Even some of the CBC stuff isn't great. I don't know. 22 minutes hasn't been funny for decades. And uh, there's some really good Canadian programming out there. Letter Kenny is great. Huh. And there's some good stuff there, but... The way it's been talked about in the past, and we'll have to wait to see the final details, it's very much trying to apply like a percentage of content requirements that made sense back when broadcast television was a thing that doesn't necessarily make sense in this century with modern streaming services. So like the, the models have to be rethought, and Canada's just not really big enough where it can really exert its own like economic clout when it comes to this sort of thing. So it, it's going to be tough. Honestly, probably the best way to really get a lot of Canadian culture and have it hold its own against the American influence is you really just need to close the population gap. But that's the sort of thing that's probably a bit outside the scope of the throne speech. On the income side, as we talked about the tax on digital giants, they also talk about taxing, quote, extreme wealth inequality, including closing the stock option deduction for wealthy individuals at large established corporations. Taxing wealth inequality is weird. I think you would usually just tax wealth. I don't know how one tax a gap. But yeah, there's not a lot mentioned in here about how to pay for this plan. And that's one of the conservatives' key critiques. The only other time taxes come up is a plan to cut the corporate tax rate in half for companies making zero emission products. 
as a way to incentivize additional green growth in the country. And then there's also the mention of introducing free automatic tax filing for simple returns, which is something a friend of the podcast, Dr. Lindsay Teds has mentioned many times and something I think we're both hugely supportive of. Yeah, not having to do taxes and to help get more people on benefits they might be missing out on. Yeah, this is one of those like small little things that's actually can make a fairly big difference. And it's just just because it relieves like a lot of stress and like family. And also, when you really think about it, it doesn't make sense that if you have an employer, they send all your information to the CRA, RSP. Like the people you have your RSP with, I believe, have the same reporting requirement. Like the CRA is collecting all of this stuff anyway. There's no reason they can't do the initial work themselves of filing, filling out a tax return automatically. A bunch of countries in Europe do it. And it's also just a weird division of labor when you think about it that, you know, we have this huge department in Ottawa full of experts in taxes. And yet we farm out most of the work of actually filling out the tax documentation to 27 million amateurs, more or less, across the country. Like, it makes sense that as long as you don't have some highly complicated you know, uh, structure with like business income and everything else, which most Canadians don't, you can just make it simple and have the government fill it out, send you a card that says... Yeah, this is what we think your taxes are. If you want to amend it, here's how. Send it back to us, or maybe even just if you don't send it back to us, we'll automatically use this version. There's ways to do it. Just yeah. to check, just to tick off a couple other policy things mentioned in there is a lot mentioned about climate. The big thing they talk about is legislating a plan and bringing forward a plan to exceed their targets by 2030 and to go to net zero by 2050 and make that a part of a law. It's still somewhat vague in how they're going to get there. They talk about retrofitting homes and delivering more transit and active transit options. But I guess we'll have to wait for that plan to come forward before we know how clean Canada is going to work. But it is good to see a commitment to actually move a bit faster even if I'm not sure how they will do it. And yeah, with a lot of this stuff, it really does seem like a case where maybe compared to prior liberal governments is a little more ambitious, but relative to everything they've been talking about and doing over the last couple of years, it's largely the same things re-announced with maybe a little more stuff coming down the pipe. And it just doesn't really feel appropriately grand enough for all of their hinting at it. And they, definitely set expectations way too high. And they want to expand the first-time homebuyer incentive. Your favorite policy, right, Scott? Uh, yeah. Subsidies for home buying isn't like the big problem in Canada right now. Really, if you want to really impact home ownership and housing costs, they should be looking at say, bringing back the GST credit for rentals, putting a lot more money up front into that, actually subsidizing the expansion of housing in general rather than trying to incentivize buyers who will just bid up the pricing of the not available enough housing that already exists. Yeah, this is not going to... They claim that these changes to the first-time homebuyer incentive will make it more affordable in the most top in the largest cities in Canada, assumably, presumably Vancouver and Toronto. But it's such a marginal effect. If you already have the cash to put a down payment on a home, you're not going to be able to buy it just because of this incentive. I am glad to see that they are committing to building more housing and putting more money into building housing across the market spectrum or across the affordability spectrum. But yeah, let's kill the Maybe because I've already used up my first-time homebuyer incentive, there's no more reason for me to support this policy. I, uh, in theory, I could actually be taking advantage of it at some point in the future. But yeah, it, in terms of the grand policy, it just doesn't really do a huge amount and, and targets the wrong part of the housing infrastructure. I mean, if they really wanted to have an impact, 
requiring broad upzonings around any federally funded transit infrastructure would probably do more than this and not cost them any money either. I'm eager to move on to the Bill C-2 that was brought out today, but I want to touch on, in addition to the fact that there wasn't anything broadly transformative in this throne speech as much as they promised, the other thing that really wasn't in this throne speech was any mention of oil and gas. They did talk about Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Newfoundland in terms of making sure the energy expertise is used in the green transition. But in, even in previous years, they'd mentioned support supporting oil workers at least as a like attempt to appeal to Kenny. But I guess this may be the throne speech where Trudeau just fully wrote off Alberta, unless Albertans are in for the transition that's coming. Yeah, it's definitely a pivot away from that. It's, yeah, probably a purely political calculation on the Liberals' part. They are not going to be able to gain anything in the Western oil-producing provinces. And because of that, it's not worth putting a huge amount of political capital in that front. Uh, The other thing that was noticeably absent was much in the way of the kind of foreign policy stuff. There's a brief section right at the end about it where the speech notes that the global orders undergone some stress and fragmenting, but there isn't really much in how that actually is going to be addressed by Canada. There's a bit about supporting international development, which is fine, but like more aid to developing countries isn't really going to help stitch together the global order. There's the, the Michaels being held captive in China, did mention, but no mention of who is holding them captive and the broad geopolitical challenges associated with China. And like, overall, it just was entirely underwhelming. And if they hadn't even mentioned it at all, it probably... <laughs> would have not highlighted how lacking that section was. I liked Jen Gerson's take on Twitter, which was that the US is about to break out into civil war and that wasn't mentioned at all. So what was the point of this whole thing? Yeah. It was pretty hot. (laughs) That's a hot take. But at at the same time, Canada is so intertwined in the broader North American economy, culture, uh, bilateral and trilateral institutions. It's our military is fairly well integrated in terms of like a common North American defense. If the U.S. does fragment or have like much worse political challenges than they currently do, which yeah, the way things are have been going over the past uh, couple of weeks, it's looking increasingly likely. Everything in here will not matter at all if that whole situation just implodes. Let's turn our attention to Bill C-2, and then we can, I think, put all of this federal politics in context. Uh, C-2 was the promised get support to people who are currently on CERB and move forward with some kind of support. The bill that was dropped this morning looks largely like it was telegraphed a couple of weeks ago in that there are three new programs, the Canada Recovery Benefit that will provide a weekly allowance for up to 26 weeks for people who are not eligible for EI otherwise. The big change is that they've gone from $400 a week to $500 a week, which if you can do the math for four weeks in a month, puts it at the rate of $2,000. It's a little bit more than $2,000 a month, actually, uh, that CERB is at which meets the NDP's criteria that Jugmeet Singh set out that he doesn't want people to be see a benefit cut as if they move from CERB to this recovery benefit. There are still additional conditions on this, like you must accept work where it is reasonable to do. But the new benefit of this recovery benefit is that it will roll back like EI does so that if you earn, you start earning money, you don't immediately get cut off of it was an ish, initial issue with CERB. So that's helpful. There's the recovery Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit. This is the quote-unquote sick leave. This is 
pay for up to two weeks off for workers who are sick or must self-isolate due to COVID-19. Now, the challenge is this isn't exactly sick leave in the way I think you or I would think of it, where it's like, oh, I called in sick tomorrow, but I'm fine on Monday. This is no, you can't work for at least half of the time you would otherwise work in a week because you either have COVID, might have COVID, or have been told by an official to self-isolate or your employer because of COVID. So it's not just you have the sniffles and can't go in, it's you have or likely have COVID. You can't go in for 10 days. That by itself is good, but if there's yeah. one thing the pandemic has shown is that we had a really unhealthy relationship with going into work sick before, uh, you know, to the point where we spread a lot of flu and cold unnecessarily. And that should be seriously rethought. This doesn't really do that. And the third program is the Canada Recovery Caregiving Benefit, which just like the Canada Recovery Benefit will cover you for up to 26 weeks. And this is a per household benefit for any worker who needs to look after a child under 12 or a family member who needs to stay home because they can't go to school, daycare, because of either COVID closures there or those individuals who are under care have COVID, which covers the other realm of people who might need to take time off. So overall, this is pretty good. And I did go through the legislation and some of the backgrounders and found that these three programs will be administered by CRA, which gives me a lot more confidence because going through Service Canada and the EI system is frustrating as all hell. And if you have to take two weeks off and you have to go to Service Canada, and right now I'm still waiting for confirmation that I'll be getting my parental leave that I applied for three weeks ago. I think it took six weeks for me to get my first paycheck. Now, I'm not chasing them as hard as some people might have to because I'm in a fairly comfortable financial situation, but that won't last. For, for an income support system, that's not really an acceptable amount of time to turn things around. Yeah. So CRA, good. They did really well with the CERB. It's good to see them on this. The other caveat is all three of these programs will sunset on September 25th, 2021. So they're only in place for a year. And this bill needs to pass by the weekend because CERB ends this weekend, which kind of brings me around to the politics of this, which is that the government knew all of this. They prorogued knowing all of this. And now they've brought in a bill that they're basically daring the opposition to vote down and thereby leave millions of people without any income. I, can can I say that I hate this? It's awful? Yeah. The, the prohibition, no matter what they said about, oh, that we need to put a lot of our attention to the throne speech or whatever else they said, it was really about making the waste handle and the cabinet to... And the committees of parliament investigating that go away. But yeah, the unintended side effect of that was, well, hopefully an intended side effect of that was that, yeah, it cut the deadline really tight to actually get the CERB replacement in place. I, I have no idea if it, this was like some Machiavellian political move to try and force the NDP's hand. The throne speech gets voted down. They can't pass this. And then... We're suddenly into an election, but that well, but even th but that might be too like, clever by a half because if everything dries up right as an election starts, it's probably not the NDP that's really going to get the blame for most people. Maybe like the super avid political watchers might connect all the dots into that way, and and maybe it's lose it's use the liberals' brinkmanship on it, but like, even then, it. Like I said, too clever by a half, probably. I'm I'm not sure it is. I don't think they've angled for an election, though. I think they've angled for a renewed mandate and renewed throne speech. Like they announced these benefits at four hundred dollars a week, and so that then the NDP was able to say, "Oh, you're proposing a benefit cut," and then magically they found the extra money to go to five hundred dollars a week, thereby meeting one criteria. Now, the NDP still says they have some concerns about the sickness benefit and whether or not that counts as sick leave, as was promised. But it's hard to see the NDP not voting for this and also holding up 
and also passing the throne speech at least so we can see what's in the fiscal update that'll be coming at some point later this fall because we've yet to see a budget this year or at least see one that gets passed. I think the other thing to mention is C2 also allows, Bill C2 also allows cabinet spending to continue with less direct oversight until the end of 2020. Now it's not a blank check for the government, but it's a renewal of that uh, debate that we had over the summer over whether parliament is just like, and this was a Bill Moore no thing. Is he just asking parliament to just let him have the purse strings? To some extent, yes, because there's no approved budget and we're in an emergency. So the government does need to spend a little bit at will, ad hoc, but. Yeah, but the blank check they were angling for earlier it was a non-starter then. And I, I expect we'll see the opposition parties in this minority government trying to start to claw back some of that prerogative of the house to set spending. So that may be the most contentious part of this going forward. I think the only other federal politics to talk about from this week was that weird address to the nation that Trudeau did after the throne speech was somewhat unprecedented in that he asked for special time on the airwaves be given to him to what no one was really told. And then he just basically talked about how COVID is still bad. You should still take it seriously. And if you don't behave over Thanksgiving, you will not have a Christmas. Oh, but then he recapped the throne speech and talked about how great the liberal government is. Yeah. So in theory, this was put, the, the, the networks were told that this was going to be a, a nonpartisan address. And the COVID stuff, yeah, it's nonpartisan. The, the Prime Minister addressed the nation on the major pandemic crisis going on. Yeah, that that's legit. But at least half the airtime was all about the throne speech contents. And that definitely crossed over into partisanship, which should not have happened. So that was disappointing. At least O'Toole, Yves-Francois Blanchet, and Jagmeet Singh each got their respective chances to reply. And O'Toole and Francois Blanchet, at least, were looking very well despite their positive COVID tests. So that was good to see them in good health. Uh, also, O'Toole did a much better job responding to that than his deputy party leader, Candace Bergen. I think she's deputy party did in the post-throne speech response thing. And honestly, the conservatives just front and center O'Toole as much as possible because the position in a rebranding he's trying to do is I think going to be much more palatable to Canadians than your typical Tory has proven to be. And they, they might as well lean into that because it was not only it be night and day since Sheer, but it was significantly better than his own senior party leadership was that very day. So let's turn it to quick takes. And I only have one today, which is I have to touch on the mess that was the Green Party leadership federally this week. It came out on, I think it was Tuesday, that Miriam Haddad was being expelled from the leadership race. She's one of the eco-socialist candidates. And I guess there was a specific debate where her opening statement was, I'm being expelled I'm not going to finish this debate. <laughs> and that just blew up. It turns out it's not exactly clear why she, what exactly she did. The suspicion is that because she had endorsed the BC Eco-Socialist Party over the BC Green Party, that this riled up enough people within the BC Greens and brought disrepute, as it were, to the federal Green Party, in part because the then leader of the BC Eco-Socialists Stuart Parker had a number of allegedly transphobic views. He'd gone to bat for J.K. Rowling in a way that people who are fighting hard for trans rights these days don't tend to do. And then when people criticized him for it, kept doubling down in a way that was not good. When Haddad discovered that those were his views, she held back her endorsement of the BC Soaks eco-socialists, and then he was quickly ousted as party leader. 
and there's a new leader and they do plan to run some candidates, but I don't think we'll be checking in on them too much unless they uh, they're, make a big... they're they're not entity really. It's probably not worth any time to focus on them unless you want us to do a repeat of what we did last election where we talked to a bunch of the fringe fourth and fifth parties leaders. So yeah, if you want an, another round of that, give us a shout. If not, yeah, we'll probably ignore the eco-socialists because they will be inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. But it's a weird thing for the Green Party to throw someone out over because Elizabeth May, when she was leading the federal Green Party, endorsed someone running against a Green Party candidate, the federal Green Party candidate, specifically... This was Jody. Wilson Raybould and the the fight in her riding. It was a shitty thing for Elizabeth May to do to a member of her own party and a candidate that party nominated. But like, Elizabeth May didn't get kicked out of, over that, and it's well. And the BC Greens to- and Federal Greens are not the same party. They are yeah, not like the NDP. That's what I was just going to say. Like, it's even weirder to do it for endorsing one different party over another party that is not your specific party. It just does not make any sense. So Haddad did appeal that proposed expulsion. And just this morning, the party ultimately ruled that she did a very bad thing that they are still keeping quiet because they don't have to uh, say specifically what it was. In the interest of democracy, they'll allow her to continue in the race. So ultimately, I think they just did the Barbra Streisand effect where they brought a lot of attention to the thing that they did not want discussed. So Haddad might actually do quite well in the race now. It's, it's definitely given her a boost. But overall, I think this is yet another example of how when the Green Party talks about doing politics differently, in reality, it's doing politics badly. Finally, we were asked to comment on U.S. politics beyond what we mentioned earlier and look at that a little bit more. It's just a dumpster fire. I don't really have any comment. There's enough podcasts out there, either from Canadians, You the People, or I think Rob Rousseau has a U.S. politics podcast for leftists, or there's a million U.S. politics podcasts out there. Yeah, there's no shortage of those. Insurgent pod. There's no charge of those podcasts over there. The, the only comment I can say is that they're in really bad shape. Like the, the structures of the American political system are not well set up for these particular stresses. And it, it's legitimately worrying that things could go really badly over the next couple months. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening.